0: the sermon text this morning is Romans chapter 3, verses 27 through 31. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Do you think Romans is a fairly clear letter? I mean, have you been able to follow the logic of this letter, how it's kind of moved forward? You know, th- think about how we started. Paul was excited about the gospel because it's the power of God to save. And he's wanting to go to Rome to share this great gospel. And, and then, of course, he speaks about the necessity of the gospel. You know, after he talks about the power, here's why we need the gospel. And do you remember it felt like a fairly long road of going through and seeing that really both Jew and Gentile are implicated? That were alike under sin. Remember how we talked about that the evidence for the existence of God is clear. We've just suppressed the truth. We haven't been grateful. Uh, we haven't been honoring to God. And he says, whether you're a moralist or a hedonist, whether you're religious or irreligious, doesn't really matter. All are under sin and all are guilty before God. Remember how we kind of we we're kind of in a corner. I think Paul was painting the entirety of humanity in a corner and saying, you're guilty. You're guilty as charged. God, your creator, has made you, given you everything pertaining to life and godliness, and we turned aside from him. And then wasn't it refreshing when our eyes came across chapter 321 and we saw that hope that God pardons sinners? Now, this is the word for justification. Justification is just God declaring guilty sinners innocent based upon Christ. Uh, We read about how Jesus has come, and and he was actively righteous. He lived in every way that we didn't, with absolute perfection. So when God would look at Christ, he would say, that's really good, well done. And, And yet he was passively righteous, and that he endured the penalty of our sin, and he endured the wrath of God against us. This is all mercy. We're just spectators. We're just recipients. We're just watching it all happen. It's a miracle of mercy, and it really, it really warrants pondering, contemplating, considering. I, I kind of thought that Paul could end his letter on 326. Boom. It's done. The end. And we could just go off and really be happy people. And yet it continues. I feel like we've been climbing up this mountain and we finally get some views. And I just want to kind of sit and enjoy. But Paul presses on. And the next section in 27 to 31 He's showing us the implications of that salvation. If you really get it, if you really understand what he did, if you really get it, then these are natural consequences. These are natural implications. It's kind of a gut check for us. So if you understand the gospel, these will be part of your life in accordance to the degree that you understand. If they're not part of your life, then that's good, too, because that gives us, we're calibrated. Okay, I don't really think I understand the gospel fully. But if these are there, and they're present, and they're thriving, then be thankful, because it means you rightly understand the gospel. So we're going to look at, it's a short little section of Scripture, but there's a lot there. I mean, the the stuff written on these few verses is quite profound. I'm just going to try to give a a high-level view of it. Uh, but, but there's three things I think Paul's saying. Number one is that if you understand the gospel, then all boasting is eliminated. All boasting. We are humble people. All boasting is eliminated. That's the first thing. You see that in 27 to 28. In 29 and 30, if you understand the gospel, then you get that you're part of a, a new creation. You're not a better you. You're not a reformed you. You're a different you. You're a new creation. And then then thirdly, if you understand the gospel rightly, then you really value the law. You value the Old Testament. You you meditate on it. You consider it still of good value. It's not to be trashed now that we have the new. But but it's important for your spiritual development. So those are the three things. If we understand the gospel, boasting is gone. It's gone. It's like the dodo bird. It's out of here. Uh, Secondly, that you're a new creation. And then thirdly, you're going to really appreciate, you're going to meditate, you're going to re-engage what God says uh, in the old book, so to speak. So let's start with the first one. If you understand the gospel, it eliminates boasting. You see that when Paul asks the question. He says, then what becomes of our boasting? Now, Paul is a bright man. He understands the human heart. He understands that we have a tendency to make much of ourselves. The the human propensity to boasting is profound. Even in the face of a gospel of mercy, we can still find things that we can trust in. How much I've changed, how much I've learned, how better I am than other people. Now, Paul's already condemned the Gentiles for their boasting, their arrogance, back in chapter 1. We saw him in chapter 2 condemn the Jew for their boasting. And I think probably this text is zeroing in a little bit more on the Jewish person or for our purposes on the religious person, uh, the person that does have some degree of morality. Uh, For this text, you know, the Jews had this great confidence that they were the people of God that they had the word of God, that they had the covenants, that they had the sacrifices, they had the temple, and they had circumcision. Circumcision was unique in the sense that it set them apart for the world. It was like a marker, a badge for them that kind of showed the world that they are unique to God. And this kind of went to their heads. And you know, Paul suffered from this same spiritual pride and boasting. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, Paul has kind of a confession about himself in chapter 3. And here's what he writes. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You hear Paul really speaking about his confidence in, in his own spiritual development. They're like badges, you know, like the Boy Scout. It's like badges across his chest. These are all the things I've done. This is all that I've become in God. This is the spiritual pride. Now, you know, when you look at the word boasting, I don't want you to think just bragging. Uh, boasting is something more. It was actually a term used uh, in in militaristic campaigns, in military campaigns, where where it was what the troops would do. You know, they, would, they would boast about the strong weaponry or the strong training. It was a way of trying to intimidate the other enemy by talking about how great you were. You can kind of see that scene a little bit in David and Goliath, when the Philistines were laughing at the nation of Israel. So, so what boasting is, is it's really displaying what you trust. In other words, whatever you boast in is whatever you trust in. Whatever you boast in, that tends to become a point of your identity. The more you think about something, the more you talk about something, the more confident you feel in something, that tends to be where you rest. It may be educational achievements, it may be business, it may be spiritual purity... But, but it's what you're trusting in. You see the same thing when Jesus gave the parable in Luke chapter 18. Do you remember the story? He wants to speak to the pride of the Pharisees. And so he says, there is a, a Pharisee that went into a temple and there was a tax collector went into the temple. And here's what they said. It says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So here you see the Pharisee, he's commending himself on what he doesn't do, and he's commending himself on what he does do. And then you see the counterpart, the tax collector, he's standing far off. Instead of standing by himself, alone, separated from everybody else because of his holiness, he's standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God... Be merciful to me, a sinner. So, so what Paul's saying is, if you understand the gospel, then it eliminates boasting. There is no room for boasting. In fact, he says that in the second half of 27, when he says, uh, what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. So Paul's putting before us, there's two ways of approaching God. One is by a law, a law or a principle of works, that I'm going to appeal to God, I'm going to approach God, I'm going to see myself moving towards God based upon what I do. Maybe keeping the Ten Commandments, keeping, keeping the law, observing some moral code. And what he's saying is, you can't approach God that way. But by, by the way, if you try, you can boast. You know, You can boast, if that's the way to God, boast away. Throw yourself a party, pat yourself on the back. In fact, in chapter 4, we're going to see with Abraham, He says that if Abraham was justified by works, then he should boast. But Paul's saying, you can't approach God that way. We've just learned all the first three chapters, you can't approach God on works. You have to approach him by faith. In other words, if we're coming to God by faith in what Jesus has done, then there is no boasting. Now, when I speak about faith, sometimes we think of faith as a work. Faith isn't a work. Faith is an instrument by which we enjoy the benefits earned by Christ. So let me say it to you this way. One author <laughs> said it in a way that was helpful. He says that God doesn't save us on account of our faith in Jesus, but God saves us in faith on account of Jesus. You know, where, does the, where does the weight rest? In other words, God doesn't save you because you have faith. God saves you because of what Christ has done for you, of which you receive the benefits through faith. So faith is that empty hand that stretches out to take hold of Christ. But the hand is empty because you bring nothing to the table. You have discarded anything that you once relied upon. So you know how every one of us here, or those of you who at least are Christians, You know, you used to think, if you were ever to think, well, how would I get to heaven? You think about the things you didn't do and the things that you did do that were well. And Paul's saying that that doesn't work. An empty hand casts aside. So I read to you that passage in Philippians 3 where Paul says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me read the rest of the verses. He says, but whatever gain or whatever advantage or whatever boasting I had I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So all the good things, you know, the badges, of spirituality that he had, he says, I count them all as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you hear the similar language? What do you boast in most? What, what area of life do you feel the strongest, the proudest, the most prepared, the most ready? Is it education? Is it business? Is it spiritual purity? What do you feel the, what do you feel the strongest about? What do you feel best about yourself? Even if you're not a Christian here, uh, boasting is a dangerous thing. Boasting is definitely, it's a, it's a threatening thing. You may not realize that, but it is. I mean, Boasting is dangerous because, number one, it makes life very unstable. Because when you tend to boast in things, uh, you're boasting in temporal things that are subject to the winds of this life. So perhaps some people want to boast in their children. They just think their children are the best. Well, children grow up. They make decisions that you don't like. They can go rogue on you. And all of a sudden, that basis of confidence now is gone. Some want to boast in their beauty. Well, beauty fades. Just give it time. Some want to boast in business or their success in business, and yet there are smarter and brighter people that come along and displace you. You know, boasting in the things of this world or the people of this world is inherently unstable because it cannot last. But not only does it, uns- it lead us to a degree of instability, but boasting actually, it, it kind of makes us vulnerable. Because when we boast, when we're people that are boasting, uh, then, then we kind of are blind to the weaknesses. We're blind to those things that we just don't want to see. Because we spend all of our time thinking about that we're doing well here and we're doing well here. And it leaves us very susceptible. That's why you see people that, you know, towards the end of their life, if they haven't really thought on spiritual matters with any degree of seriousness, they've just been business, 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 or life, life, life. They get to the end of their life, and all of a sudden they know that, that time is now on a short stick. They begin to regret this massive regret. Why didn't I think earlier on these things? And they see their vulnerability. We're blind to our own weaknesses. When we boast and think, I had a friend, a good friend, who was in construction I don't think I've shared this, or I always say a good friend, that's not like a, I'm not hiding things like it's who in this room is his good friend. But he was in construction and I don't think I've shared it here, but he, um, he had just finished a project, built a deck, painted it, stained, it looked beautiful, really enjoyed it. And uh, he was driving away from this project and uh, really just driving slowly. The house was on a corner lot, driving around, and just looking at it and thinking, man, that thing really, really, it wasn't super arrogant, right? I mean, he was just enjoying the fruit of his labor. And it was going so well until he, boom, ran into the back of a parked car. Now, the, every, the parked car was obvious, it was right there, everybody knew, but he was kind of just so mesmerized by his work. He didn't even see what was was obvious to everybody else. It makes you vulnerable. It blinds you to your own weaknesses. But not only that, boasting also, it separates us from one another. It divides us. I mean, you see it in the Pharisees standing by himself. When we think so much of ourselves, it creates levels within our relationships, you know, you see this I think in sporting events all the time, whether it's soccer or football, the soccer player scores the goal or the football player tackles the runner behind the line of scrimmage, what what do they do? They tend to run away from the team that helped them do that. They want to make sure that everybody in the stadium sees it was me. It's pure boasting. And it's separating them. The rest of the team has to run to celebrate with them. And they often run further away from the team so that everybody knows they did it. Boasting separates us. Now, this is just between whether you're Christian or non-Christian, boasting is dangerous. But when it moves into the realm of spiritual boasting, now it gets really dicey. It gets really dicey. So C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, in the eighth chapter, he has the chapter called The Great Sin. This is the great sin, to think that somehow we are better. And and his point in this chapter, and I'll read a brief quote from it, but his point in the chapter is that spiritual pride usually comes in some comparative analysis. You look at yourself in light of other people. You begin to think how smart you are that you actually believed. You actually begin, I don't know how it may manifest in your life, whether you look at yourself and you see how much you've come and how family members just don't have the sense of spirituality or awareness of the scriptures, but, but it's a dangerous thing to be spiritually boasting. He says it's excluded. Lewis warns us this way, he says, whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted upon not by God but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or you see yourself as a small, dirty little object. It is better to forget about yourself altogether. It's kind of a test, are we spiritually proud? If you're a Christian here, we have to put a fork in this. We have to kill it. And the way that we kill this spiritual pride and this this sense of spiritual elitism is by considering our lives and considering our lives in light of Scripture. This is where the Bible is really helpful. When you read the Bible, you begin to read the Bible and you can look at yourself in the pages of Scripture and you see how far off you are. So you may read the Ten Commandments. You may read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You read that, you begin to realize, maybe I'm not as spiritually advanced as I thought. It begins to humble us. Do you practice repentance? Do you consider the spheres of your life, your, your personal life, your marital or friendship life, your, the community of faith and, and the workplace? Do you, practice, do you try to take your soul to task and say, where have you wandered this day? What have you done? I I don't do this to bring about a sense of spiritual darkness, but but to try to get a true appreciation so that we are not walking in spiritual pride, that boasting would be excluded. You know, the word is like a mirror. So each of you, I would imagine most of you, perhaps now all of you, looked at a mirror when you came to church today. Right? I mean, you wanted to make sure your hair was in place. You wanted to make sure your clothes were in place. You wanted to make sure that you didn't have anything on your face. You need that mirror because you can't see it. You can't look at your face. is that funny? You can't look at your eyes. Isn't that weird? That's a contradiction. But you, you, you look in the mirror to see what you can't see. The Word is like a mirror. The Word reveals to you where you are. So when I read, let no unwholesome thing come out of your mouth except that which is fitting and for the occasion and upbuilding to the listener. What have I said today that doesn't meet that? Boom, that's a point of repentance for me. The, the word reveals to us our sin, so that so that we can humble ourselves and boast in Christ, not boast in ourselves to focus on Christ. Do you know that God has accepted you in Christ? That if you're a Christian here, that you have been accepted by God. He loves you now as much as he'll always love you. He has accepted you fully in Christ. He has declared you innocent. Is that not something to boast about? If you get horrible news tomorrow, your future is absolutely secure, 100%. God knows you, he loves you, he has entered into a covenant with you of which is established on the very blood of his Son. That is something to boast about. Make your boast in God. That's what Paul encourages us in 1 Corinthians. He says, because of him you're in Christ Jesus, who came to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. In him you have all things, so boast in the Lord. It's the language of heaven. The language of heaven, the language of being in the presence with God will be boasting in all that he has done. Let me read you a new song that we will all learn. It's Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain with your blood. You ransomed people from, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. and You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign forever on earth. We will sing about his worthiness forever. So, if you understand the gospel, then boasting is eliminated. Is it easy for you to boast in God? Do you practice repentance? Do you practice humbling yourself? When you find yourself comparing yourself to other people, and you always kind of end on the higher end, do you repent of that? Do you ask God for forgiveness? Do you ask God, reveal to me if there is any wicked way in me? In Psalm 139, ask him for help that you might walk in a deep humility, making your boast of God. That's a natural consequence of understanding salvation. If we really get that everything has been done for us by Christ, then we boast in him. And we, and we don't boast in the achievements we've made. Okay, secondly, look in 29 and 30, because... If we understand the gospel rightly, then we understand that we have been fashioned differently. We've been made new. Look what Paul asks. He says, again, speaking primarily to the Jews here, I think, is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one. Now, what I think Paul's doing here is he's saying that God is singular in his glory. He is the author of creation. He's the king of creation. There is no other God. There are no other gods. He has no other competitors. He is singular absolutely completely. And and this would not have been a surprise to his Jewish audience. Probably one of the most well-known verses in the Old Testament among a Jewish community would have been the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This great statement of monotheism. They would have agreed with this absolutely, wholeheartedly. But here's where the rub would have been in the next part of that verse. He says, yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Now, this would have been jarring to a Jewish listener because the Jewish listener would have understood that they had special privileges. I mean, they had circumcision. They had all the the words of God. They had the covenants of God. Uh, They were part of God's plan. And, And that knowledge and those spiritual advantages went to their head, and many even wondered if a Gentile could be saved. Some went so far to think that a Gentile would be used to fuel the very fires of hell. That's the danger of spiritual pride. And with their advantages, they had forgotten came responsibilities. They were to be a light to the world, and they failed. Just as Adam failed in the garden, So Israel failed in the wilderness. And it wasn't until Jesus came as the new Israel and the new Adam to fulfill all that God planned so that in him all would be made one. That's what he's saying here. Paul is demolishing the Jewish argument that you have to become a Jew to be saved. He says, no, 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 no. There's no more Jew being saved. There's no more more ethnic lineage to God. It's Jew and Gentile, and they're saved alike through faith, not through circumcision. Circumcision was a huge badge for them. He demolishes it. This is a major point of discontinuity, that it has changed now. Israel is no longer the apple of God's eye. It's now the church, and the church which has been saved by faith, both Jew and Gentile. Because it's through faith that we're made into one new body. By faith. There's no more distinctions now that God looks at. We still do. He does not. He says it this way, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, For he himself, this is Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances in other words, the things that separated Jews and Gentiles, he's abolished those. He might create in himself one new man in the place of two, making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross. This is, this is really fairly cataclysmic if you would be a Jewish listener to this. It makes sense to us We're Gentiles were being dragged... But it would be a pretty big deal. So what is this word for the, you know, when you read those two verses, it has a word for the world. And that is that we live in a tolerant and a pluralistic society. The message from the Bible is that God is one and his salvation is one, which is through faith. Now, even if you're not a Christian here, this is why we promote the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. I don't want you thinking we're being judgmental. I don't want you thinking we're being bigoted or hard-headed or narrow-minded. It's just what it says. There's one God and one way of salvation through faith. Now, for the Christian here, this is what we espouse. This is what we preach. And in, in a tolerant, pluralistic culture, this will increasingly be ugly news to people. But you need to be firm on this. This is what he says. There's one God and one way of salvation for the circumcised and the uncircumcised. For the religious person and for the unreligious person, it's still salvation by faith. But it also has a word for the church. You know, Do you realize how like we are? In other words, we are together exactly the same as being people that have been saved through faith. Christ is the center of gravity. He's the sun in our galaxy. He's the gravitational center. It's Christ. It's not in how we dress or where we come from or the educational background that we have. We are one in Christ. The world gathers and they pocket themselves around hobbies or various interests and likes and dislikes, around political theory and around financial position, but the church doesn't. Our gravitational center in this church is not political conservatism. It's not educational philosophy. It's Christ and Christ alone, that he alone has saved us. So that's that's how we're the same. But we are different. We are very different as people. But I think when you read this, that the differences are no longer distinguishing us from one another that we are called to embrace the differences, in fact, to enjoy the differences. Now, I think I think even once you become a Christian, the default position is still, I want to hang around those people that are like me, and that I enjoy, and that enjoy me, and they have similar backgrounds, they have similar customs, they have similar habits. I get it. I totally get it. But the church is to be a display to the world that we're different. That's what the world does. We don't do that. We... We, the church is trying to make inroads where we're crossing, we're crossing ethnic and social and educational and financial barriers to be friends and encourage the faith of one another in here. So I would just ask you, to what degree do you make an effort to bust up your, you know, the, the, the lives that you've centered around and to include others of a different nature who are fellow believers? To encourage them not just to get a bigger band of friends, but to encourage them in the faith, to display for the world that this is what's, what's the same but different about the church. How many friends do you have that are different than you? Particularly in this church. It, it would be a mark uh, of what I think he's saying here when he's saying that the distinctions now are blurred. In fact, we're reading a book as a staff called Christianity at the Crossroads, and it's a book about the second century church. And the second century, it's just swept up in the last number of centuries. You kind of don't think about it, but it really was an instrumental part when the church was kind of growing and separating from Judaism. But, but here's something interesting that the author wrote about. It was a critical time of the church. Of course, we don't even think about it, but it was really helpful in terms of keeping the church on path. What he said, th- he said was this. He says, most religions at the time are tightly bound to particular ethnic and national identity. But Christianity was adopted by a variety of people groups, crossing the standard boundaries. In a rather unprecedented fashion, Christianity now allowed religion to be conceived as an entity independent of the ethnic cultural components that were normally attached to it. So most religions were either limited to a geographical spot or to an ethnic people. But Christianity was the first religion that crossed those lines and began to be a colony of heaven where every tribe, tongue, and nation were together worshiping God and enjoying one another. I think that's what he's calling for here. So if you understand the gospel rightly, do you see yourself as being made new? Not made better, but you're made new now through faith. Okay, and the last part of this short little passage is if you understand the gospel rightly, you will value the law, the law of God, the Old Testament. Now, there's a big debate about what law means here. Does it mean the Mosaic law? Or does it mean the general teaching of the Old Testament? I don't know. Uh, I I was convinced by both arguments. You know, the first argument you read, that's it, and the next one, I like that one too. So I'm not sure that it really matters at the end of the day. But look at what he's saying here, because Paul's anticipating your objection to him. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? He's saying here, you can just hear his audience. He's pushed faith, 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 like I just did. And then you're saying to me, well, what's up with the law? Do you even need the law? I mean, do I worry about the Sabbath anymore? Do I have to keep the commandments? What do I do with the law? I mean, you said it's all faith. It's not by the law of works. So why should I even worry about the law? I think that's what he's at. That's what he's raising as an objection. But look at his answer. He says, by no means does it overthrow the law. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Now, what does this mean that we, by faith, uphold the law? Well, if by law we mean just the general teaching of the Old Testament, justification by faith does uphold the law. Let me explain. We're going to see this next week that Abraham was justified by God. He was declared innocent before he was circumcised. He didn't do something and then receive justification. He was justified by faith. And so are we now. So you see the continuity between the Old and the New Testament. So when we are justified by faith, we're upholding the law just as it was taught. If you think that it means the law of Moses... That you know we uphold the law of Moses. Remember what the law of Moses was to do. The law of Moses was a mirror exposing your sin that you would see your inability to be saved and then you would turn by faith to a Messiah that was promised to deliver. So the heart of the Mosaic law was for us to be pinned in a corner to see that we are unable to deliver ourselves so that when we would turn to God looking for the sacrifice of atonement, whom the Messiah would be, Save us. And so Jesus, that Messiah, fulfilled the law and thus upheld it in his own death and resurrection. So it's one of those two. But let me just move beyond that, because I know I've lost half of you. But the question remains, what does it matter, Tom? What do we do with the law? And that's a huge question for the Christian to reconcile the gospel and law. And let me just give you two things that I think we can do in response to this is value the law, maybe even more than you do. Value the law. Think through, you know, what the law teaches us. When you look at the Old Testament, it reveals to us the glorious character of God. It reveals to us his perfection. It reveals to us his holiness and his beauty. And and, and you can see why you need a gospel. When you see how absolutely dazzlingly beautiful and perfect he is, you begin to realize, we well, just go out tonight and look at the stars. And you'll feel very small. And that's just a creational comparison, but a moral comparison before God. So we need the law. We want to value it. Because it reveals to us the glory of God. It reveals to us the nature of sin and how God views it. But not just that. We need the law because it reveals Christ to us. Didn't we just see that last week in Luke 24? That the law and the prophets speak to Christ? Listen to what David said in Psalm 19. And David, by the way, was justified by faith, like us. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. He says, more to be desired than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. and keeping them there is great reward. There's all kinds of encouragement to know the Old Testament scriptures, to know the mind of God from the Old Testament. So that's the first thing I would say is we want to move into the Old Testament to really understand God more and understand Christ more. But then I'd also say to strive to walk in light of the law. Now, what does this mean? I'm not saying that God will love you more if you keep the moral law. I'm not saying God will put you in a higher place of heaven if you're holier than the person next to you. I'm just saying that when the law represents God, we want to obey it. Jesus himself said, you know, there's two houses. One was built on the sand. That was the person who heard the words of Christ but didn't do anything about it. The other person is the house on the rock. They heard the words of Christ and they followed it. So we do want to follow the law, particularly the law as we understand it through Christ. Remember how Jesus said, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, don't be angry at your brother. Jesus is giving us an explanation of the law. So we want to look to the words of Christ and walk in light of them. Strive. When you fail, repent. Enjoy the fact that you have the gospel to run to. The one thing I don't want you to do, and if you're here today and you're looking at Christianity, or even if you're a Christian and you've slipped back into patterns that you think God looks at you based upon your performance, don't try to keep the law. I wouldn't do that. Uh, Because if you try to keep the law, if you try to approach God on the law, uh, one author said you're going to have to do one of two things. You've got to change the law. You either have to change it because you won't be able to do it, and you'll change it, like instead of following love your neighbor as yourself, which will constantly trip you up, you've got to change the law to go to church and don't drink alcohol. And if you can do those two things, you... but you've got to change it if you're going to try to keep it. But I'll say that you're nullifying it if you do that. And, and if you don't want to change it, then it's going to crush you if you try to keep it. It'll crush you with despair because you won't be able to do it. And you'll end up either hating yourself or you'll hate God. You'll hate God for his law, or you'll hate yourself because you can't keep it. This is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel is God inviting us to a pardoning service through faith in Christ. But the person who has faith in Christ will never boast of his accomplishments. He'll boast in his God. The person with faith in Christ... He'll never see himself separate or different than others. He's going to see himself or herself as one with all those others who have the same need for the gospel. And and if you have believed in Christ by faith, then you want to honor the words of the one that saved you. So Paul here, after speaking to us about how deep we are in sin, how God has pardoned us by faith, and then he says the consequences of this are this. It eliminates boasting. We are a new people now. Let's reflect that in our loves. And we love the law. And we read the law. We're not judged by the law. We're not found higher up with God because of the law. But the law represents God. And we want to represent God. So let's take a minute now. Just perhaps a point of conviction for you. Perhaps or maybe even encouragement. But let's. Confess to God that which is pressing on our heart right now and then I will pray for us in just a moment.